Well, this morning we're taking our final look at this series uh, called No Eye Has Seen. And uh, some of you may be familiar with this television program called Location, Location, Location. Okay, now the, um, a great uh, New Zealand property developer, uh, I won't, will remain nameless, he wrote a book called Location, 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 saying property investment is all about location. And uh, of course, when, if you've ever seen this program, it's all about how folks go on a journey to look at um, different houses and make a decision as to which one they prefer, and then they ideally will put an offer in on it. And it's always intriguing, isn't it, about how people discern what it is that they're looking for in a home. And if you watch this program for a while, you realize that buying a home is more than just bricks and mortar or wood and tin, isn't it? Uh, all the time you get these folks walking into these houses and they go, hmm, it feels really good. It's like, what do you mean it feels really good? You know, maybe it's a bloke response to a, a woman's intuition that I have here. But uh, when we talk about feelings, how do you describe how a home feels? And yet in Scripture, what God is trying to do for us as we look down this, uh, this keyhole to the, that city of God, as we look down this keyhole, God is asking us to experience heaven and get a feel for what it's all about. And the, the harder we look, the closer we look, uh, we get that feel. Is that a good idea? Because God invites us. He invites us to be anticipating what it is that heaven is all about. So as we've said, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived what I've prepared for those who love me. So this morning we're going to ask the question as to what it is uh, that this final resting place that we have is going to look like and what it is that we will do when we get there. All right, because uh, those are really, really important questions. But to start with, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us back to Genesis. The thing about Genesis is it's not just the beginning, it's also the end. It's not just the beginning, it's also the end. Because God started with the, the ultimate resting place, the ultimate place for us to have fellowship with him. And so when we look at Genesis and the revelation there that's given to us, we see not only the Genesis, but we also see the revelation the book of Revelation. There's a picture there that holds together not only the beginning, but the end. And so let's have a look, remind ourselves of what should be a very familiar set of verses to us in regards to how the world was created under God's hand. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from, it, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The first the name of the first is called Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx is there also. The name of the second river is the river Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here's our picture, a beautiful, a beautiful place that's been created <clears throat> for our purpose, for us to dwell in. Not only for us to dwell in, but for us to dwell in with God. And the image there of walking in the cool of the evening with God is one that we are encouraged to hold on to. But it's a place um, where there is no evil. In other words, in the absence of evil, there is innocence. And innocence is something that we have largely lost. Uh, even, even as adults now, we are working really, really hard to protect our children from the knowledge of good and evil and keep them in a land or a place of innocence. Isn't that right? You know, so much around us, so much media around us now that just um, bombards our young people with, with uh, this understanding of good and evil to the level in which it can be just very, very destructive. Um, just, <clears throat> excuse me, just on the weekend, we got a text from our daughter and uh, she has a 20-month-old boy, James, and they were down at the beach. And uh, when you're 20 months at the beach, it's all an adventure, isn't it? And uh, apparently he saw the seagulls landing and he was running down the beach chasing the seagulls going, cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. <laughs> and uh, it was like, you know, these are the few words that he's got and cuddle is one of them. And so it was just a, a lovely image of innocence, isn't it? I want to give the, the seagull a cuddle. You know, why would they run away from a little boy who wants to cuddle the seagull? And so here's the image that we hold on to. It's a beautiful image, but... We're also told in the Genesis account that in this innocence, we're also given responsibility. And that responsibility is to manage the garden with God, to manage the garden with God. And so therefore, we have, don't have this, this overriding impression that it's just about sitting around and doing nothing, which seems to be one of the more dominant images of heaven that we are given. Maybe it's the Hollywood heaven or the picture of heaven that we, we want to create. But uh, that image of heaven sitting around doing nothing, sitting on a cloud, is uh, something that we have to try to, to overcome. Um, you know, because for obvious reasons, as this guy saying, I wish I'd bought a magazine. You know, um, sitting around in eternity playing your harp, you know, there's nothing exciting really about that unless you're one in a million who plays the harp. Um, I don't know about you folks, but it, it really doesn't do a great deal for me, Okay doesn't do a great deal for you probably either. So the image of Genesis is, is far greater than just the, uh, the, the, the walking and the talking with God. And yet, because of what goes on in the Garden of Eden, because of the destructive nature of what happens in this next account that we'll look at, we are going to find ourselves looking at the world through God's eyes and looking at how it is that this, this garden has to be restored. So let's have a look at it. Um, we, we're now moving into chapter 3, where the fall, as they say, takes place. And the fall is where um, the woman has been created. And now the devil has turned up, the serpent has turned up, and he's wanting to renegotiate the contract, renegotiate the contract that has been made with man and woman and God and centered around this tree that you're not allowed to eat from. So... You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See the temptation there? 
right from the outset, uh, the, the serpent is saying, if you do this, um, you will be like God. Because why, why do you need to know what God knows? It's because God's holding out on you. And one of the big things about uh, temptation is that you always have this sense that you're missing out on something. That's what temptation does. It tells you loudly that you're missing out, and therefore you've got to cross this line to try something, and uh, otherwise you're missing out. Okay, that's how temptation works. I was listening to radio the other day. It said 30% of adults in New Zealand have tried pee. And I'm like, that is just dumb. That is dumb. It's insane, especially when we know that it ruins people's lives, you know? So you, you get this temptation. But why are people tempted? Because they think they're missing out on something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Last night, um, in, the, in the hour leading up to um, the closing off of the lotto shops, 20,000 tickets a minute were being sold. 20,000 tickets a minute were being sold. Uh, why? Because people were missing out. People thought they'd miss out. They have to be in with a grin, in with a chance. And that's, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't um, have, a, have a problem with people buying a lotto ticket. But I was talking to a lotto shop owner last night, and uh, he said that there were people coming in literally buying hundreds of tickets. In some cases, running their credit cards or their, their FPOS cards through having purchased 10 tickets, finding that it declined, and so they'd reduced the number of tickets Seven and put it through, declined, six tickets, accepted. Does that make sense? Yeah. Spending their last dollar on it, all in hope. Why? Because they're missing out. And this whole thing of missing out, uh, FOMO, we call it, eh? fear of missing out, is huge. So on that basis, the devil tempted Adam and Eve. Well, Eve. And uh, <laughs> when, what does it say? Read it with me. When the woman went to the shop and saw that it was on sale, so I would have said, hey, is that unfair? Of course it's unfair. I'm in trouble. If I'm in trouble now, you should wait a few minutes and I'll be in more trouble. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, wisdom, missing out, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, very kind of her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God, Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. <laughs> she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Okay. Yeah, they're in it together. Don't worry. This is a, this is a combo. This is a, this is a, you know, don't blame the woman here much. <laughs> so the goal, though, in what we're describing here is to describe how paradise was lost and paradise is broken and paradise is now to be restored. The goal is to restore this beautiful image of man and woman 
walking together with God in the cool of the evening. This is a, a, an incredibly beautiful picture. And uh, Genesis, for all that it describes about the creation, it is primarily a story about God's relationship with us. That's the reason Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is given to us. Yes, we can read into it all about how the creation occurred, but like no other story, it's about God's relationship with us and how it's been broken. And so even with Christ coming into the world, the whole idea was to restore what it is that was given to us in Genesis. When Jesus described to his disciples those few verses that he called the, we call the Lord's Prayer, when they asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, it encapsulates some of this image as well. Remember, it says here, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. The whole goal is to bring heaven to earth. Okay? Where's the image of heaven? The image of heaven is back in Genesis. Okay? The image of heaven that they understood was the Genesis account. There was no book of Revelation happening at this point, the picture that they held was one of what God had already created. And so here, even the disciples are looking back through the same picture, the same keyhole that we are being told. And Paul captures the state that we find ourselves in. Because we have a, a condition, a broken condition, a sinful condition, but we live in hope of what God has created for us. The book of Romans, Paul says this, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, that's the place God created, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, that's sin coming into the world, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. See the word? Liberated from its bondage to decay. So it is bound to decay. It is bound to rot. That's what decay does. It rots stuff. But we're going to be liberated from that. And so is the whole planet. And brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how we are so tightly linked also into the creation? Our salvation, our creation, everything is part of the bigger picture of what God is going to redeem. You know, some of you might go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's climate change stuff. I'm not an environmentalist, you might say. Well, you are an environmentalist. You are. The last time you had breakfast, lunch, or dinner, you're an environmentalist. You're intimately linked with the planet. They say, so you can't help yourself. We are all linked into the planet. And so when God talks about creation and he talks about salvation, the whole thing is not just saving souls for heaven. This whole world is going to be liberated from decay. It's a great picture, isn't it? It's all in. It's not just souls for heaven so that we can go sit on a cloud and play a harp. That's a very, very small picture of, or a very small imagination of really what God is trying to do for us or was going to do for us. Paul goes on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we, eat, as we wait eagerly for, the, for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So Paul is saying, this is all God's timing. We're waiting patiently. It's all God's timing, okay? 
And for us, we groan. We groan inwardly. We groan inwardly because our spirit within us longs for a closer walk with God. We have, but we don't yet have. We taste, but we don't have it completely. You know, we're we're yearning for more relationship with God. That's a human experience. Uh, And we groan because our bodies are subject to decay. Yeah? You ever heard Granddad, seen Granddad getting out of his chair? Eh? There's more noise there than you'll ever find from an old car. It's like... Okay, that's just getting up from the table. You groan inwardly and outwardly, all right? Guess what? By the grace of God, you live to be 90, you'll be making those noises too. Okay, so again, we keep looking down this this little keyhole. And what we find, though, is that there is a story here that is still to be be told. And and the thing about the, the disciples is that they only got to look back at the Garden of Eden. They only got to look back at Genesis. We have this advantage whereby the Apostle John has been given this literal revelation, okay? They reckon he was 90 years old, okay? So maybe his body was groaning at the time. But 90 years old on the island of Patmos, and the book of Revelation was poured out into his understanding, into, into, I think, more than he could probably ever put into words, but the words he chose were, were absolutely amazing. They gave us this, this keyhole view into heaven. And so Paul describes this. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Isn't it interesting how that tree is on both sides of the river? Okay, Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. See, see what it says there in the third to bottom line? There will no longer be any curse. The curse is what came upon us when Adam and Eve sinned, okay? When they ate that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that moment, a curse came upon us. We, our bodies, we and the planet became subject to decay, okay? So all of what we know now as sin, what we know as a broken world, uh, is going to be reversed in this moment. When the city of God, there will be no more curse. It's very hard for us to imagine what that is like. I mean, we again, we can only sort of get a feel for it. You know, like I say, walking into that house. Sometimes we can anticipate walking into a house, can't we? What it would be like. Location, location, location. What's that place going to be like? Well, no more curse, no more brokenness, no more shame, no more guilt, no more lies. All open. Innocence. Chasing after seagulls going, cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So just a a completely supernatural place. So the question is, what do we do in heaven? What do we do in heaven? Well, um, again, found a few of these cartoons. I've got to say, um, I was quite amused by them. Um, I miss stress. I mean, sometimes you can't imagine what a world is like without a little bit of tension. You know, you know when somebody um, 
resigns from a job or retires, uh, um, one of the biggest challenges they face is what do you do with, my, with their time? You know, it's like, I'm retired now. Honey, I've noticed that you don't do the dishes correctly, so I thought I'd come along and advise you. How many of you women have had that advice given to you one the day your husband retired? Oh, you're not going to admit it, are you? No, that's right. Yeah, because at least he's doing the dishes with you. That's great. Um, now, this next slide um, is probably a little bit out there, but um, I asked my wife if I could show it, and she said that's okay, so you'll see why in a moment. Um. Oh! So anyway, um, maybe this is a bit age-related, this one, but um, it's just nice to know what happens in heaven, isn't it? Um, so what do we do in heaven? The first thing that we do is rest. The big picture for us is rest, okay? Now, it's strange for me to say, what do we do in heaven? And the first thing I'm trying to tell you is that you do nothing. Well, let's try to unpack this a little bit, okay? Because this image is given to... Uh, us as uh, people who might have gone through tribulation or gone through challenges, okay? So there's a, there's a huge gathering, if you like, of those who have struggled in this world, all right? And it says, the one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Isn't that beautiful? Being sheltered with the presence of God. It's like a you know, chicken with its little chicks, yeah? Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, when I talk about rest in this context, we're talking about um, a rest where you have no more stress. In very simple terms here, we're talking about God's provision for food, for water, for shelter. And in New Zealand, we go, oh, what's the big deal? Heaven doesn't sound that cool. Well, we live in exceptional times, majority of us. We know we've got a homelessness problem, but in other parts in the world, when they turn their lights off at night, if they've got a light, they're not sure that they're going to be safe. When people go walking down the street, when the children go for a, uh, go somewhere, there's always this fear that they might get hurt or, or, or on the way or on the way back. So just removing all of that stress, if you can imagine what that would be like for particularly people who have known uh, incredible hardship in their lives. And in this context, it's talking about those who have been subject to hardship because of their faith. Okay, they've stood for Jesus and they've paid a big price for this. In the context of the final tribulation, there will be a number of people in that category. Isaiah the prophet, who 800 years before Jesus spoke about a kingdom that is to come, used a different set of images, which I think, again, are really powerful when they talk about rest, and particularly in regards to safety. Have a look at this. The wolf will live with the lamb. All these, all these images are contradictions. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Isn't that, eh? you can see that. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down to get, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
all these contradictions, all these things that don't happen here on earth because of sin, because of the need for animals to eat literally one another. And then it goes on with this image that is just so crazy. It says, the infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Man, that's crazy stuff. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, nor for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the water the waters cover the sea. Does this sound like a good place? Sound like a safe place? A place where you can say to the kids, off you go. Go and enjoy. Go and enjoy walking with God. Go hang out with the cobra. Go hang out with the lion. Take them for a walk. Have a ride if you want. Chase the seagulls. Cuddle, cuddle. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool to me. Another thing outside of resting is that, um, and this, this catches us a little bit by surprise, you know, because we don't think we're worthy of this. And I'm not really sure how this works, but we're going to be called to lead and to judge. Okay? So the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, was deeply concerned about their inability to reconcile problems that were internal. And what was going on was that people were taking uh, fellow Christians to court to get the courts to sort out problems between them. And Paul lifted their eyes. He lifted their eyes and got them out of the gutter of this immediate problem that they were, they were having and reminded them of where they were going to end up when they ultimately inherit eternity. He said this, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? See, he's lifting them out of the gutter. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So Paul's saying, basically Paul's saying, grow up. Grow up. Get a grip. Get a, get a bigger view of life, eh? Don't worry about these trivial little court cases that you've got grudges against one another about. You are going to be placed in a place where there is going to be a lot more demanded of you. And look, we're all capable of more. You know, the interesting thing about the court system in New Zealand and throughout the democratic world is that we take everyday folks and we ballot everyday folks into juries. And in that moment, people really do discover something fresh about themselves when they're called to step up, consider all the information in front of them and make an accurate decision calling on all the information available to discern as to whether somebody's guilty or not guilty of what they've been accused of doing. We are all capable of more. And so when you look at this example that Paul is describing to us here about how we're going to judge angels, we go, Ooh, wow, that's a bit tough. Well, I'm sure we're going to be up to it in the, in the fullness of time. I don't know how that's all going to work out but in an environment that we're going to be created, for, uh, created into, or sorry, given into, it should work out, I'm sure. Um, the book of Revelation describes a similar sort of thing when it says, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, that, that's people who are in Christ. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So it's not, notice how the, the words are really quite pointed there, not reign for him, but reign with him, with some sense of shared authority going on here. So you'll have allocated or delegated responsibilities. Now, that, that's pretty cool, eh? Dance like better than sitting on a harp playing the same old tune all the time. You know, sitting on a cloud playing a harp um, or reading that magazine that you bought with you. Yeah? 
There was a man who turned up to uh, heaven, the, uh, the metaphorical heaven, where St. Peter is at the gate, which is nothing biblical about St. Peter being at the gate, but... Um, and uh, he'd been a really, really good Christian, and so God allowed him to take a few things with him, things that were special to him. And so he had these bags, and he turns up at the gate, and he plonks these bags down. St. Peter says, oh, what's the story here? He says, well, God, you know, God allowed me to bring these extra pieces uh, into heaven because they were my treasures, and I wanted to bring them with me. And uh, so with that, um, St. Peter opens up the bags, and he says, sees these big blocks of gold. He says, oh, really? And with that, he whistles. Somebody comes over with a wheelbarrow and says, more paving stones for heaven. You know, so again, perspective, eh? It's really important. The third thing that we will do is worship. Now, I know that there are musicians amongst us and the idea of perpetual worship is exciting. Then there are those who aren't musicians, who don't get quite so excited about worship for eternity. But I want to I just sort of correct some of our thinking. You see, we're designed somehow, I don't know how it works, but in a, in a broken slash decaying form, we're created to be moved by music. Every culture around the world is moved by music. Every culture has music at the very center of what defines it as a culture, and they use it to express their deepest, their finest, their highest feelings. Yeah? They, they grieve with music, they celebrate with music. So there's something about music that is within the DNA of every human being. And I think it's, it's a remnant, if you like, a remnant, a DNA remnant of, of what was going on in that initial Genesis account, that initial place of walking and talking with God. Because it's just something inherent in everybody about music. And the crazy thing is that, that, that this music is, is used inappropriately at times because music can be, and words can be associated that are, that are really negative. But the crazy thing is if you ever go to a concert, a, a secular music concert, it is an act of worship for a lot of people, isn't it? They are literally there with their hands in the air, okay? And uh, all we've got is some men and women playing some music on stage but it's an act of worship. And when I see that, it reminds me that we carry this inherent DNA to worship. And so when we get all this incorrupted DNA, when all the decay has gone, okay, when we are liberated, to use the biblical terms, back to our original un, uh, sinless sort of way, I, I think we're going to find ourselves so much in tune with this understanding of worship and our ability to bring praise and thanks to God, that it's just going to shock us all, even those of us who, you know, struggle with music or struggle with music users' worship. I think it's just going to be a breakthrough, a revelation. So don't be intimidated by it, because some people go, oh gosh, the thought of worshiping forever is just going to drive me mad. Um, it's, it's not what it will first seem to be. And let's just have a look at this. This, this again, picture of what John is describing to us here is only a human interpretation of a, an eternal vision. Okay. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So they're just pouring out what they feel God is worth. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, that's Jesus we're talking about here, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, heaven is going to be full. Full. Last night our son came home from Wellington and um, <clears throat> we were out but we came home about half an hour later and and we'd left this um, food cooking in a crock pot, you know. And um, we walked in last night, and he says, oh, it's so good to get in. Open the door, and he said, I could smell home. I could smell home. You know, some of his favorite tucker there cooking away. Uh, your 25-year-old boy, anything cooking is favorite. So, that's, uh, yeah. So, um, for us, for us as, as followers of Jesus, what we're being described here is the smell of home. And I've tried to use that picture of that keyhole that just looks down that little alleyway to the city of God. Uh, for us, we'll only ever have that, that distant view, that, that smell in our nostrils or that ring in our ears of what it is that awaits us. Why? Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what I have prepared for those who love me. Heaven is our home. And the reason why heaven is so important for us to understand is because if we don't have a clear picture of what heaven is about, we will waste our lives here on earth. And this is my final point I want to make. And this is why I'm leaving it to last because this is really, really important. You see... What we think of heaven and what we will do with, our, with the best that we have that God offers us is going to translate back into what we do with the life that we live here. You see, if we think that heaven is all about having a, a laser round on a cloud floating around doing nothing, then what we will think is, is that our best years here on earth, should, we should be aspiring to be doing very little. We call it retirement. So we work flat out, flat out, flat out, and then the seesaw tilts. We're now into retirement, and the goal is to do as little as possible. That's not the image of the garden, and it's not the image of heaven. And if the garden is heaven, and heaven is the garden, then we've been given responsibilities to ensure that we work with and for God all the days of our lives. I, I just think that we've got this, this really um, bad myth, this bad theology, this bad image in our head. Every time we think of heaven and we think of stopping at that point of rest, remind ourselves that we, we're called to judge, we're called to work, and we're called to, to worship. All of these things are an expression of what it is that we should be calling ourselves to and others to here on earth. Because what is worship here on earth? Worship is not just the praise of God. Worship is that whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. We should never run out 
of an excitement for how we're going to spend the time that we've been given. And if by the grace of God and hard work sometimes, great imagination and skill, you've got a few extra dollars when you get to 65 or whenever you want to retire, the goal should be to spend that money by spending that time wisely and well. And so don't aspire to nothing. Don't aspire to spending your life just doing as little as possible. I know you call it freedom and you've got choices, but believe me, there is no um, purpose in just seeking pleasure. There's no purpose in seeking pleasure, but there's a huge amount of pleasure in seeking purpose. There's a huge amount of pleasure in finding what the will of God is at any given time of your life. Uh, but don't ever think that your latter years are all about just sitting in the chair, waiting for your body that is decaying to creak and have the grandchildren laugh at you when you get out of your chair because of the noises you make. That is not what you're called to. Heaven defines your present as much as it defines your future. And that's what I want to leave you with. Heaven defines your present as much as it defines your future. Let's stand for prayer. We're going to, um, we've had a lot crammed into the service today, so um, we won't do a final song. I don't know if the musos are out there tuning up, but um, we'll call it a day here. Father, we thank you for the images of heaven that we are given. We thank you that they inspire us and that they are just enough. They're just enough to give us that hope and a future for all that we would expect to come from who you are, a place bigger than our imagination, a place bigger than our eyes can see or ears can hear. And so, God, for that reason, we, we have the ability to be able to live in this world productively, and yet we have this deep, deep security of what it is that follows. Lord, already, even this week, I know that uh, some folks in the church here have lost a, lost a daughter, uh, an adult daughter, suddenly. And yet, in the midst of the pain and the loss and, and all the immediacy of, of this, um, there is hope. We don't grieve as those without hope. The sting of death has been taken away. And more than that, Lord, we know that we're going to have purpose. And in that purpose, we're going to find fulfillment and we're going to have the restoration of innocence. We're going to find a place that we can live where there is no anger, no frustration, no death where you will wipe away every tear and that you'll shelter us, you'll protect us, you'll provide for us the living water, food, rest. God, these images are more than just pie in the sky. They, they are what you've given to sustain us as you remind us that this world is not all there is. And so God, I just pray that you'd empower us with these images, allow them to inform us in the lives that we lead, the priorities that we have, the frustration and the panic that sometimes comes into our life when we're being told that we're missing out somehow. God, help us, we pray, to hold on to the picture of heaven, for that is where our home is. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Well, God bless you.